As many of you know, Walt Disney loved animals. He loved creation. And really going back when he was a, a young boy, one Sunday afternoon, everyone was kind of sitting around having a lazy afternoon when he noticed a, an owl sitting in a low-lying branch on a tree. It was so beautiful. And he thought, I've just got to touch this owl. And so he began sneaking up around from behind and he actually managed to get all the way up to it and he reached out to grab it. And when he did, you can only imagine what this owl did. I mean, it began to peck on him, scratch on him. It began to fight. And he was so shocked, he grabbed the owl and threw it down and kicked it to get away from it. When he did, he killed the owl. And he was so shocked and suddenly felt this incredible sense of guilt and grief over what he had done, he never forgot the experience. As he had come to realize, what does it mean to say, you want to love creation, you want to grow close, you want to appreciate it, but at the same time, how do you keep from harming it? That is the challenge. So as the years went by and Walt Disney began to create all kinds of movies, that highlighted animals. He made sure the animals were well-researched and portrayed in the right kinds of way, trying to create a sense of respect and appreciation for all of creation. But the values that he planted there in Disney continued to live beyond him so that ultimately in Disney World down in Orlando, they created Animal Kingdom. And Animal Kingdom is an amazing place for animals. Last summer, Marsh and I went through on our vacation And we went to Animal Kingdom and went on one of the safari rides. You may have been on the same ride where you get on this this car, this truck, and actually kind of start heading out into the woods. You're just out there in the land. And there you come across lions and you'll come across the giraffes and, and the antelope. I mean, they're not in cages. They're all out in the land. You're in this car. You're open air. You're kind of looking out. It truly is more like being on a safari and and just being out there with the animals. It is beautiful. It is amazing. turns out there is 250 different species. Many of them are endangered species. There's 1,700 animals. And at the end of each day, if you take a behind-the-scenes tour, what you discover is there is a place where they are fed every day a very specific healthy diet just for that animal that every day each animal is given a bath, which is better than some humans can say. (laughs) Every animal is given a bath every day. The vet checks the animals each day. In the end, their blood is drawn once a week in order to make sure they're doing all right. I mean, when you go and you, you travel through there, you come to realize this isn't just an animal sanctuary where animals go to survive. No, they are there to thrive. I believe that's what God was telling Noah to do. Not just help animals survive, but thrive. This morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series that I started last week. We're calling it Wild Kingdom, Celebrating God's Creation. And I've said that each week, I want us to look at a passage in the Bible where God uses animals in order to help us to understand the gospel, to learn lessons about how to live life. Last week we were looking at Isaiah and we were hearing about how a, a, a lion, a, a, the wolf would lie down with the lamb. 
Well, today we move on to a different passage, a passage maybe one of the most famous in the Bible of Noah and the ark. We all know the story, how God said Noah's a righteous man, and so he told Noah to build an ark and to go get the animals two by two, two of every species, and to bring them onto the ark. And then it began to rain. Forty days, forty nights, it rained. Until finally the whole world was flooded, and the, the whole earth would be covered by water for 150 days. Finally, the ark would begin to settle. Now, whenever you see paintings or pictures of Noah, you know, what do you always see? What you always see are the paintings bringing the animals onto the ark two by two. Or you see them in the boat, afloat out onto the ocean, and you see a rainbow. But you know, that's really not the important part of the story. What God commissioned Noah to do was to get those animals off the ark, back into creation, where they might be able to thrive. That was his mission. Today is Father's Day. Today is a day when you and I come to honor the men who have blessed our lives. It's an important day. Maybe you're fortunate enough to have your father sitting beside you today here in worship. Maybe your father is hundreds of miles away. If he is, you be sure and call him this afternoon. But maybe your father is already in the kingdom of heaven. And so we come and we offer a prayer of thanksgiving as we express our gratitude for the men who have blessed our lives. Being a dad is not an easy job. It is so hard, the decisions you have to make and how you have to live and what you try to do. It is important to understand, dads, that as we come together today to honor you, we are all trying to be reminded. Our first and foremost responsibility is to help our children to thrive. And it's really not just a job only of fathers, though it certainly is our responsibility. It really is the responsibility of all people for those that you love. I want us to look at what God commanded Noah to do and how he lived out God's calling for his life and what we as fathers are supposed to be doing for our children, what we can all do for one another. And there's three things that I want us to see. First of all, Noah did for the animals what they couldn't do for themselves. He built them an ark. If he didn't build an ark, the animals would not survive. No, he did for them what they could not do for themselves so he could not just protect them, but prepare them to be able to survive the storm. St. Francis of Assisi, I told you last week, St. Francis of Assisi is the patron saint of animals, and he said of animals, not to hurt our humble brethren is our first duty to them, but to stop there is not enough. We have a higher mission, to be of service to them whenever they require it. To be of service whenever they require it, to be there to protect them, but to prepare them and to help them to face the storm. I believe that's the job of fathers. We are supposed to be there in order to help our children be prepared to weather the storm, to do some of those things they would not have been able to do on their own. And that may be when they are five, it could be when they are 50, we're still supposed to be there to be helping them as they struggle with the issues of life. Some of you may realize that right now this is the 75th anniversary of Little League. 
It was back on June the 6th, 1939. The first Little League baseball game was played in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. It turned out it was all because of a man named Carl Stotts. Carl Stott was uh, back in 1938. It turned out that he, uh, he'd come home from church one Sunday morning. He had a wife, two daughters, but he loved playing baseball. And it was his sister who had a couple boys. And he loved playing catch with Jimmy, his nephew. And when he finally got home from Sunday school along with some other boys, they all went out in kind of a field behind the house to pitch and throw the, throw the ball around. And Jimmy threw a wild pitch and it turned out that Carl was running to catch it when he fell over a bush and he hurt himself. He kind of dusted himself off and got back up to the porch to sit down to kind of clean himself up. And, and he thought, how often am I watching kids in sandlot baseball and there's rocks and there are bushes and there are all kinds of obstacles. So he looked at Jimmy and he said, and his friends, and said, what would you guys think if I created you a, a field that was clean where you could play baseball? And what would you think if you got uniforms just like the pros? And I, I'm always watching you play Sandlot baseball and you waste so much time having to argue, was that fair or foul? Was he safe or out? A strike, a ball? What if we got you umpires? Boy, that'll be a blessing for you. How about if we get umpires for the game so they can make the call one way or the other? And what if we got some men to coach your team? And, and what if we, had, we play and we come to the end and have a playoff game and someone wins a championship? The boys were thrilled with the idea, especially, can we wear those uniforms like the pros? To be able to get uniforms, he knew we had to raise some money. So he decided to go to some businesses and ask, will you sponsor a team? Companies have been sponsoring Little League teams now for 75 years. He decided to go to some companies there in Williamsport and ask, and he went to 56 companies, and every single one said no. It wasn't until he got to Lycoming Dairy, they finally said yes. And then Lundy Lumber said yes. And then Big Pretzel said yes. He finally had three sponsors, so they had three teams. He got some other family members to help coach the other teams. And finally they were ready for a league. So June the 6th, 1939, it was the Lycoming Dairy playing the Lundy Lumber. And the Lundy Lumber just beat the dickens out of the Lycoming Dairy. 24 to 8, they just tore them up. But in the end, the first lesson to be learned in Little League, it would be the Lycoming Dairy who would come back that year to win the championship in the league. You don't ever say die, keep on playing. Well, today, there's two and a half million boys and girls in all 50 states and 80 countries around the world who are playing Little League right now, 75 years later. Well, what I thought was fascinating was that Carl Stott said in 1939, Little League is simply a vehicle to help our children learn life lessons about sportsmanship, fair play, and teamwork. It's simply supposed to be a vehicle to help our children learn life lessons. Now, i got to tell you, I played Little League. My son Paul played Little League. My grandson Luke right now is playing Little League. If you've been to any Little League baseball games, you know there are some people who didn't hear what Carl Stotts had to say about Little League. There are so many coaches and parents who are out of control 
It isn't about learning life lessons. It's all about winning. And you hear people out of control at Little League games. Just a couple of weeks ago, Marsh and I went down to Dallas. We knew that Andy and Kelly and the family would be moving to Denver. So we wanted to go down and be with them. And we got to go see Luke play a Little League game. And boy, it sure did bring back the memories. It was so much fun. And we were sitting there, and it wasn't very far in the game, boy. You know, the other team gets rolling, and they get people on base. And, you know, then there's an overthrow, and people are running. And they've now instituted a, a rule. On an overthrow, you can only make go one base and have to stop. And so there was an overthrow, and people were scoring, and it didn't seem like they stopped them all. And, boy, the coach for Luke's team ran out to go talk to the umpire, and, and they had a disagreement. They weren't screaming. They weren't hollering. But, boy, you could tell. There was a disagreement about the interpretation of that rule. Finally, the umpire said, that's the way it is. Coach went back to the dugout. The game went on, and boy, we got further behind and further behind. Finally, we came to the last inning, and we were like five runs down. We were the bottom of the inning. We came up, and Luke hit a shot kind of down third base, and this kid scooped it up and threw, but Luke was fast running down the base paths. The throw was off at that age. The kid had to run kind of down the baseline, make the catch. He was obviously safe. The umpire hollered, out. Well, there were several of us who wanted to say, excuse me, excuse me. (laughs) We we, we tried to help catch the umpire's attention to say, maybe that's not correct. Um, Here came the coach back out of the dugout, running out to see to the umpire. and, And he came back out and he said, I want to appeal that call. It was by the umpire out in the field. And so the umpire came in and the two of them talked for a little bit and then the umpire walked back out into the field and he went, safe. I think it has to be the first time I have ever seen an umpire overturn his own call and say, I was wrong. Luke got back on first base and then there was another hit and kids started to score and we kept hanging in there and in the end, as time ran out for us to be able to play the way these games are, we came back and tied the game when it had to end. And so the game was over, and then we all gathered out behind the dugout, and I wanted to hear what the coach had to say. I got up behind the near, and, and I heard the, the, the coach say, Now, you know, tonight you saw that we had a disagreement, the umpire and myself. I don't want you to feel uncomfortable when that happens. Nobody screamed. Nobody hollered. We weren't mad at each other. Sometimes in life, people disagree. And it's important to learn how to disagree. And then we saw how they made a mistake. But notice how they said we were wrong and they changed their decision. Sometimes you make mistakes and have to say I was wrong and do it different. And you know, we were down and you guys didn't quit. I mean, it would have been easy to give up and you didn't quit and we came all the way back and we tied. I mean, how much fun. And remember, that's why we're here. This is a game and we're here to have fun. Y'all have a good time tonight. And I thought, Carl would be proud. 75 years later, somebody gets it. It's simply a vehicle to learn life lessons so you are prepared one day to thrive. Dads, that's our responsibility to help our children in ways that they can't always do for themselves, to help them learn life lessons so that they are ready to go out and to thrive. And the truth of the matter is, I believe that's what our Heavenly Father does for us all. 
You see, we're all being presented with life lessons all the days of our life. Till the day you die, you'll be presented with life lessons. And until we learn them, we'll keep getting them again and again. The whole goal is we should be learning so we are prepared to thrive in the midst of the storms. Noah's responsibility wasn't just to get them on the ark, to keep them safe. He was there really preparing them in the midst of the storm to be able to thrive. But secondly, Noah's goal was not to reorder creation. Noah's goal was to get all the animals back off the ark into the world so that each animal could thrive and be the thing they call, that God created them to be. It sure would have been easy for Noah to get all these animals on there. You got the, the, the clean animals and the unclean. Bring them two by two. Now, you know, to say clean and unclean, you could have also said the animals he likes and the animals he doesn't like. But Noah wasn't told you get to play favorites. You take care of all the animals. The ones you like and the ones you don't like. The ones that are clean and the ones that are unclean. You take care of all God's creation. And you don't try to reorder creation and tell them how to live and what they're supposed to be like when they get off the ark. Your goal, Noah, is to prepare them for when the storm is over to get back into creation and to thrive being the creature God has created them to be. You know, one of the great temptations as fathers is to try to tell our children exactly what they're supposed to be. That we try to tell them, this is how you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to be. Here's what you need to do. Rather than helping our children discover their talents, their abilities, to hear God speak in their lives, to let them dream their dreams, that's our calling. This last week I I saw a commercial. Some of you may have seen it. It was with uh, Peyton Manning and Eli Manning. It was advertising direct TV. It was called Football on Your Phone. It's actually a a commercial where they sing a rap song along with their father, Archie. They're dressed up in this interesting kind of... It is a funny commercial. You can find it on YouTube. You can Google it. Football on your phone. When I saw it, it made me think about the Manning family. What a fascinating family. Archie Manning, you know, was born in Drew, Mississippi in 1939. He grew up with a father in those days who was a good father. He was there to provide for his family. He loved his family, but he was a time when you don't tell your children you love them. You don't hug them. There was no physical affection. He said, my father, though, was disciplined, and he helped to have the right values. He said, I didn't miss a Sunday of Sunday school for 13 years in a row. He taught me what matters and what I should be doing, and that's what I did. But Archie hungered to have a closer relationship with his father, to know how he loved him. But that didn't happen. In the end, Archie grew up super quarterback, got a scholarship to go play at Ole Miss. And there in Ole Miss, he was a superstar helping Ole Miss rise to greatness, make it back to a bowl game. I mean, he was somebody in Mississippi. And in 1971, he was second in the overall NFL draft, went to New Orleans, and boy, they had a bad team. He had the Dickens beat out of him playing for New Orleans Played their 11th season and never had a single winning season. But he loved football. And then he began to have his boys. They started to have children. He had Cooper and then Peyton and then Eli. 
It turned out that all loved to play football. Cooper was really good. He also went to Ole Miss on scholarship. They thought he'd be a superstar, and he had a congenital birth defect that suddenly showed itself, and he had to have surgery. He almost died. But then you know the story of how Peyton came along, and then Eli. Both would be drafted number one in the NFL draft. Both would win a Super Bowl. Both would be named MVP. To have all that come out of one family, it's a fairy tale. It's not possible. But Archie Manning likes to say, I really don't like it when people say, I scripted this because I didn't. I didn't set out for my boys to become quarterbacks. I told my boys I could care less if you play football. The most important thing for me was not for them to be quarterbacks. The most important thing for me is I want to have a good relationship with my sons. And so it was that Archie made sure as the boys were growing up, he hugged them and he told them, I love you. He made sure that he was there to cheer them on whatever they were doing. Dads, I want to tell you, make sure today you tell your children you love them. You need to be there to hug them. They need to know how you care. Archie did that for his sons. And they loved their dad so much. So when Peyton came along and he was such a superstar in high school, he got recruited by a hundred different colleges. I mean, everybody knew he'd be legacy and go to Ole Miss, just like his dad, just like his brother. But after he went visiting colleges, that's not what he decided to do. He signed with Tennessee. And the day that Peyton Manning signed with Tennessee, Tennessee, the state, was thrilled. And Mississippi went into mourning. They felt it was treason. And they began to take out their anger on Archie. Archie received calls and letters, was stopped on the street, talked about on TV, radio. He took so many hits saying, how could you not get your son to go to Ole Miss? I mean, they just crucified Archie. How could you do this? Peyton would later come out and say, you know, if my dad had told me to go to Ole Miss, I'd have gone. I respected him that much. But instead, my dad came to me and said, you need to decide where you want to go. You need to decide what's right for you. And once you make that decision, never look back. And you need to know, I'll be there to cheer you wherever you are. Peyton Manning said, I was grateful to have a dad like that. Our call is not to tell children what they have to be or what they should be. It's to help them find their talent, their way, to hear God's dream for their lives. That's our responsibility. Noah wasn't supposed to change all the animals to be what he thought they should be. And he didn't play favorites between the clean and the unclean. No, his goal was to get them safely through the storm. To let them go back into creation and to thrive being the creature God created them to be. And so third... The Bible says Noah was a righteous man. That's why God asked him to build the ark. He was a righteous man. Now please hear, Noah was not a perfect man. 
If you want to be reminded of that, you just go back and read the story of Noah yourself in Genesis there, all of it. Noah was not a perfect man. Noah was a righteous man. To be righteous means you are in right standing with God. You are in right standing with those around you in the way that you love them. To be righteous is to be in right standing, not to be perfect. You're trying to be in right standing with God and to be in right standing with one another. Dads, it's when you seek to be righteous, not perfect, not self-righteous, when you seek to be in right standing with God and in love with those around you. You have such an influence on your children. Dads, let your children know you do a daily devotional. We talked last Sunday about daily devotionals for diehard fans. Make sure you do your devotional. Your children should know. Make sure your children know that you pray. Make sure your children can sit with you and worship. Seek to be righteous and right standing with God and with them in a spirit of love. It's where you're able to then be able to, to help prepare them with life lessons in the storm so that they're able to thrive and become the people that God has called them to be. Some of you may have been hearing the story. It's been circulating again. It came out 20 years ago now. There's a story that took place um, in the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Ted Shearer was the curator of the Baseball Hall of Fame in those days. And it turned out back in 1994, they were going to do a renovation of the Hall of Fame. They were putting a new humidifier system in in order to try to protect the baseball memorabilia. And as the men got in there and started moving the, um, the, the cases around, somebody found a, an envelope, a manila envelope, underneath one of the display cases. And inside was a picture, and on the back there was some writing. They took it to Mr. Shear right off the bat, and he took only a moment to look at it and to know it was not one of the 261 men who had been inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. But he had no idea who it was or where the picture came from. He looked at the picture, and he could tell it probably was from the 1940s. There was a man dressed in a uniform. Bat was on his shoulder. Behind him was a, a picture of a dinosaur on a gas tank. Probably he thought it's from the old refiner league back when they were playing for Sinclair Refinery. Some of you, myself, I will remember the dinosaur, Sinclair Refineries. And so it probably was an old industrial baseball league. But that's all that he knew. And he couldn't figure out, didn't know who the man was. So he went to his friend, Steve Wolf, who was at Sports Illustrated, and asked him if he would run the story, help him find out, get to the bottom of this. Steve Wolf ran the picture and the story in Sports Illustrated, and soon enough, they had the story. It turned out the man's picture, well, it was, it was Joe O'Donnell. That's who the picture was of. Joe O'Donnell had died a number of years ago. It had been more than a decade before when his son, Pat O'Donnell, had come to the Baseball Hall of Fame there in Cooperstown, in, up in Canton, Ohio. And so he, he came to the, the Baseball Hall of Fame and there he was walking around, and when no one was looking, he had a, had a manila envelope with a picture in it. And when no one looked, he slid it under a display case, between the display case and the floor. It had sat there for more than 10 years. On the back of the picture were written these words. Dad, you belong here. You were never too tired to play catch with me. 
On your days off, you helped build the little league field. You always came to watch me play. You told me the Hall of Fame was only for the best of the best. Well, you were a Hall of Fame dad, the best of the best. I wish I could share this moment with you. You deserve to be here. Your son, Pat. When Ted Shear learned the story, he sat down and he wrote a letter explaining the story. And then he took the letter and the picture and put it back in the manila envelope and put it back under the display case for some future curator in years to come who would find the picture. So whenever they did, they would know why the picture was there and why Joe O'Donnell would be a part of the Baseball Hall of Fame forever. Your responsibilities, Dad, are to be a righteous man, to be in right standing with God, to be in a right standing of love with those around you you care about, your children. For when you are righteous, then you're able to see the life lessons that sometimes need to be learned. You help to prepare and keep safe in the storm. Not to tell your children how to live, but to set them free so they can move back into creation and be the people that God called them to be. It is not easy. But for our dads who have gone before us and for all dads today, we want to take the time today to honor you and to say thanks. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.